Welcome to the Nen Valley Vineyard podcast. What you're about to listen to is some teaching from our Sunday services. We're a church made up of people from Wellingborough through to Oundle spread across the Nen Valley and beyond. If you want to know more about us or find out how to get involved, visit our website, which is nenvalley.church, or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Nen Valley Vineyard. Um, to a new teaching series around silence. Um, And it was a a talk all about being with Jesus. And uh, if silence doesn't sound exciting to you, bear with me. You will think it's the grit. No, I can't promise that. I don't think you'll think it's the most exciting thing ever by the end of this. But hopefully you'll feel encouraged towards it. We've spent the kind of a chunk of this year so far exploring how we can be transformed into the image of Jesus. And not just because it's a nice thing for us to do, for us to be more like Jesus, but actually because we believe that the world around us needs the church to look more like Jesus. And so as we've encouraged people to do that, actually we want to explore some things that might help us in a practical way do that. So we want to unpack a spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice because some of you don't like the word spiritual discipline because the word discipline is too hard to spell, let alone to do disciplines. Okay? And I'm kind of with you on that. I'm, I'm, the, I'm not the driven personality that is like six o'clock every morning I'm getting up to do a spiritual discipline. I have to make myself do it. But we want to do these together because actually we recognize that doing spiritual practices alone is hard. And actually, the church is a community that is individually and collectively being transformed and changed into the image of Christ. So we set out this kind of idea of the things that form us, because there is a reality to our lives, which is that if we're not being formed into the image of Jesus, then we are being formed into something else. There is no option to not be formed into something. And just to say this, if you think you are the one person who is not being formed by something else, then you are being formed by that idea. Okay, you literally you cannot escape this idea that you are being formed into the image of Jesus or the image of something else. So some of the things that we've kind of highlighted that might form us: one is the stories that we believe, or the narratives that we believe. So interestingly, if we look at the crisis in the Ukraine, if you live in Russia, there is a good chance that you have been told that what you are doing is going to rescue the Ukrainian people. The rest of us look at that and go, that is not what is happening. But they're in a place where they're being told a story and they believe the story and that forms their worldview. Now that's quite an extreme example, but that happens to each of us day after day after day in different ways. And it's interesting because this, how you deal with your, the stories you believe can shape how you are. It can shape how angry you get about stuff. So Brexit would be one that's happened recently where people, families, families have been divided and won't talk to each other. Stuff like that. Because either side has bought into a worldview. I'm not giving any opinion. But either side has bought into a, a, a worldview and bought into the stories that they believe. The other thing that then forms us is habits. Not all of the habits that we do are bad, but they don't necessarily form us into Jesus' likeness. Some of them are good. Some of them we intentionally enter into. Some of them we don't. 
So I do not enter into the habit willingly to eat donuts, but it still happens to me. Sometimes I don't know how it happens. Sometimes I don't realize it's happening until the donut is in my mouth. Is this normal? Is this? No? But we're formed by all these little tiny habits over and over again. Some of those habits, like I say, so there's nothing wrong with Netflix, but if, if you habitually watch Netflix every night for hours, at some point something has happened to you. There is a habit formed to do that. Then relationships is another. So I have no idea how true this is because I'm not a sociologist. But there's that thing that gets batted around, that actually you are most likely to be most like the five people you spend the most time with. That our relationships influence us. And all of this stuff kind of forms this environment that shapes us. And actually what we want to try and explore is what would it look like to do life with Jesus and be to counteract some of these things. So we think we're going to explore this through teaching is one. So actually coming back to scripture and coming back to things that have been in the church for centuries and millennia. To hear, you know, um, and teaching doesn't just look like this, I should say. Um, This style of seat, the way this is laid out, just so you know, is called theatre style. Because you're all looking at me which I hate in lots of ways. But this is the way church has been for the last 150, 250 years in this country. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but if all of our teaching happens in this environment, then our teaching is ineffective. So maybe it's in small groups. Maybe it's through friendships and relationships and mentoring. Maybe it's going to things like the prophecy workshop where you're hands-on. Maybe the teaching actually comes through just going out onto the streets with Jesus and talking to people. Because Jesus is the great teacher. There is all sorts of ways that that teaching happens. This is not all of it. This is just one way. Some of you are like, thank goodness for that. I thought I was going to sign up for like weird Christian university. Nope, you're okay. It's all right. The next one then is to practice. So practice is like the one we're going to unpack today. The just press pause or stop on some of our habits and give us space again for Jesus. And then community, I appreciate community sounds very much like relationships. But actually, I think the church is meant to be a community that um, with many of our relationships, we pick and choose our relationships. If a relationship gets difficult, we just cut it off. But I think in the church, we're called to something, we're called to relationships sometimes that rub us up the wrong way. Usually because we need to grow. And we want to do all of these things in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit to be in the midst of our teaching and in the midst of our practice and in the midst of our community. And look, this will take us years to figure out, can I be honest? This will just take a long time for us to figure it out. But the practices that we do really are counteractions to push back against some of the habits that we do and we have. You know, we've said that we want to be with Jesus, we want to become like Jesus, and we want to do the things that Jesus did. If I can do more of that stuff, I think the world will be a better place than if I just stay as I am. And so we want to start with being with Jesus. And we want to practice his ways. Because actually, the reality is we can be a bunch of nice Christians that meet in this hall on a Sunday morning, 
and just have our nice time of singing and listening to some bloke with a silly beard talk at them and go home, have your coffee. Or collectively, we can be transformed into the way of Jesus. And my suspicion is, though the world doesn't know it, actually the world needs us to look a lot more like Jesus than look like their, whatever their view of nice, quiet Christians is. And I think you see that when Jesus comes. People are drawn to Jesus. But generally speaking, people are not drawn to the church. So there is a disconnect there somewhere. Now, when I say the word practices or spiritual disciplines, some of you are wondering what I'm talking about. Um, and I don't know what your background is, but maybe you've come from like what you call like a slightly reformed evangelical background. There's some big words there. okay? Um, but actually, people who... Um, are really keen on taking the scripture as authority. And your view of practices like silence might be such that you're like, well, if it doesn't involve scripture directly, it's of no use to me. Actually, as we explore the practices, what you'll see is scripture is either in the practice, so when we're practicing doing things like scriptural memorization, or reading the Bible. Reading the Bible is a spiritual practice. Sometimes, actually, the practice is formed by what we see in Scripture. And silence, for me, is one of those. We see all the time, and Angie's going to unpack this for us next week, that Jesus retreats and has quiet and stillness. For others of us, maybe you come from a Pentecostal background, and you hear the word spiritual disciplines, and you're like, no, I'm free in the Holy Spirit. And I'm okay, like, yeah, great, good. Me too, hopefully. But my own experience, so I grew up in like a Pentecostalist church. Is that, is that allowed? Pentecostalish? Does that count? Um, that actually it can give up the rhythms that keep us grounded in Jesus. And it can chase the big stuff. You know, it can chase the healings and the miracles. And, the, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus himself basically says, don't come for the signs and wonders. Come for Jesus. And that's where the practices help us. Because there are times, if you've been to a Pentecostal church long enough, and I don't know why, but sometimes the miracles dry up. And there is more hardship than there is healing. And in those times, you need Jesus. Now, I'm fully for healing. Interestingly, as a vineyard church, we would be placed that we are both evangelical, so we love the scriptures and we treat them as authoritative. That's the right word, authoritative, I don't know. But we're also Pentecostal. We fully believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and we fully believe in the power of God for healing, all that stuff. We believe both of those things. But we recognize that in our culture, we really need some of the practices again. And maybe for you, spiritual disciplines is one that you're like, no, nope, I'm not doing disciplines. Jesus has set me free. And I, I get that. And particularly in our modern culture, that is the tendency. Because if you look outside of the church, the spiritual life is all about finding freedom. The difficulty for us as Christians is where are we set free? We're set free in Jesus, right? Jesus sets us free. 
But what does he say? He says, come and follow me. We have to choose to follow him and enter into the ways that he sets for us. But the world's narrative is that idea that, well, freedom isn't found in doing particular things and having rhythms and all that stuff. Freedom is found in being true to yourself. And I I understand that there's something that's kind of good in that, that we each have a unique calling in Christ and a unique relationship to have with Jesus. But I think when you start to unpack the idea that freedom is all about being true to yourself and free to do what you like, none of us actually believe that. Nobody does. Because all of us have ideas of what is and is not acceptable. And we need that. Actually, society falls apart as soon as you get rid of all of the things that prevent people having freedom. Interestingly, if you, this language of being, you know, treat yourself free to do whatever you like, doesn't really rise in popularity until the 1960s. Prior to that, freedom is about freedom to live a life free from tyranny and oppression. So you look at the people in the Ukraine now, and you ask them, what does freedom look like? Freedom doesn't look like being able to do whatever you like, but freedom might look like being able to have a life in peace and life knowing that you, you, know, you, you know that you can go out and do your job and do your work and be family and there's not, a bomb is not going to come rocketing through your front room. And there is a difference between those two kinds of freedom. And actually Jesus calls us to freedom in him. And so I think there's, there's freedom in this, this transformation into Christ-likeness. And what I, don't, what I don't mean is we're not meant to look like a middle-aged Jewish man. There's some things in that, even in the, the religious language, and even if you look around the church, there's some, things, there's some things that are good religious things that I don't know that Jesus necessarily calls us all to. Actually, what Jesus calls us to is being his image bearers. Now, we talk about this a lot, okay? And I'm going to keep talking about it because it's, it's a huge idea, and I don't fully comprehend it. Can I, I'm allowed to say this as a pastor, right? There are things in the Bible that I don't comprehend. But when God creates humans, this is Genesis 1, he makes, makes humans in his image. Now, that word image is an interesting one. because So if, you, if I say to you, uh, you're made in my image. Maybe you have a, this image of like a photograph or a digital photo that you can share around. That's not what the word image is in the original Hebrew. It's this word salem. And we don't really have a framework for that word particularly. The only other places it's used in the Old Testament is when in reference to idols in the temples of other gods. And some of you are like, well, what? 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 I know. Welcome to the Bible. Um, there is this sense that actually when God makes us in his image, that somehow through us and the way that we live and the way that we reflect him, others can come to him in the same way people might go to an idol in a temple to access their God. Does that make sense? But when we see the fall and you know, there's the serpent and somebody's eating fruit and they shouldn't be and all that stuff, and if you need to know, want to know more about that, Genesis 1 through 3. Read that and reflect on that, right? When the fall happens, 
one of the things that happens that we often don't talk about is that ability to be the image of God to the world around us, to, to be God's rulers, to bring his kingdom come, is somehow diminished. It's kind of like looking at us in the mirror and the mirror is cracked. And you see this. So you see lots of good things in people that don't know Jesus, right? So a whole bunch of the people that are going out to the Ukraine now to give humanitarian aid are not Christians. There is something in their hearts that still has the ability to reflect the image of God. But actually, when Jesus comes, the the language in the Bible is interesting. He is the image of God, and he calls us to follow him. And as we follow him, and as we become like him, we rediscover our ability to be his image bearers. And so when I say we want to be more like Jesus, some of your responses, and we talk about things like spiritual disciplines, some of you are like, this just sounds so religious. Could I just challenge that? The, the, The end goal is not for us to be more religious. The end goal is for us to rediscover what it is to be human again, to find wholeness in the healing. And this is what the world craves. It's interesting, as we've gone into a secular age, which is what we're in, people my age are flocking to different spiritual movements because they realize that there is something more than the secular world is giving them. That somehow they've lost some of their humanness. So these spiritual practices, they are just counteractions. They just come against the habits that we've started to embrace because of the stories we believe and the relationships that we are in. And they push us back towards Jesus. And could I say this? Any of the spiritual disciplines will not bring you instant gratification. So when we talk about spiritual disciplines, some of you are like, that sounds great. So if I go and pray and do the thing you say, will I immediately feel the benefit? No, probably not. In fact, you may feel worse. Could I just add this in there? This is not a 10-step spiritual health program. This is a long-term, slow commitment to walk with Jesus. And we embrace it because it resists all the narratives and all the stuff that try to tear us away from Jesus. And actually, what you'll see as we unpack some of the practices, which will take us years to do, but some of the practices are abrasive against the the world around us. Some of them we will find offensive. But as I say, the truth is, actually, the world doesn't need us to look nice and more like the world around us. The world needs us to look like Jesus and follow him even when it's uncomfortable, and even when it's uncomfortable to ourselves. And this is the crux of it, because, you know, we could stand here and have a weird form of Christian Buddhism where it's all about making ourselves better. But the reality is the world needs the church to be changed and transformed. And so we've used this quote on and on and on. This is a book um, called Invitation to a Journey by a guy called Robert Mulholland Jr. I'd recommend it to anybody. It's not necessarily an easy read, but it's worthwhile if you enjoy reading. He says this, spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. And it's that for the sake of others is the bit that we often forget. So we want to try a practice as a community. Partly in recognition that we can't really do it alone. But we want to practice it slowly. 
So, you know, I could have, we could come up and we could do like talk after talk after talk. Here's one practice and another and another and another practice. But we just want to take one because we recognize that in trying to do it, there is a sense of trying and training. There is a sense of wrestling with the things that come up in the midst of it. Um, so that practice, you may have guessed, is silence. I'm not expecting anybody to be surprised at this point that silence is the one we picked. And here's why. There is a sense in which the practice of silence actually requires us to do nothing. And my, I would put money on if I wasn't a pastor and I was allowed to do that thing. that actually doing nothing is far more difficult than any of us realize. Just a couple of psalms, because I recognize that what I'm doing this week is unpacking an idea. There's not a huge amount of scripture. Andrew's going to come up with loads of scripture next week. I've seen her slides already. If you need to, like, if you're offended this week, come next week. It'd be balanced out about average, the amount of scripture you're having. The first is this, and this is one that we're familiar with. Victor referenced this last week. Be still and know that I am God. Sometimes that is the greatest medicine we could come across. Be still and know that he is God. And then Psalm 62 verse 5 in the ESV translation says this, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. So as we try and practice silence, here's what I think we may discover. That actually we're embracing silence as resistance. Why resistance? Because I think the more the church buys into all the stories and habits and ways of the world, we are slowly losing our ability to bring our hearts, our minds, and our bodies back to focus on God. We are, we are literally losing that skill. So, I've got a video that I'd like you to watch. Is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? Did anyone see the moonwalking bear the first time? Not the first time. Did anyone see it the second time? <laughs> okay. Who's seen that video before? That's often that's the only way I know there's a moonwalking bear. Yeah. I share that video because actually it's a good analogy for life. That we are so filled with tasks and things and work and friendships and Netflix and stuff and stuff and stuff. 
And that actually, we can miss God in the midst of it. Now, I appreciate reason 645 to leave this church. I just compared God to a moonwalking bear. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but hopefully that's a useful analogy for some of you. And actually, all these distractions, there's a, a, a Guinean um, cardinal, and he calls, he refers to all of the stuff of life as the dictatorship of noise. And some of us would be opposed to that idea of dictatorship, but try and stop life happening to you. It's hard. And some of it's quite blatant as well. In 2017, Reed Hastings, who is the CEO of Netflix, quotes, says this in an interview. You get a show or a movie you're really dying to watch, and you end up staying up late at night. So we are actually competing with sleep. And we're winning. This is the guy that is in charge of Netflix. His, their competition is not Amazon Prime or Disney Plus or other things. Actually, their enemy is the things that make us able to function. Just some statistics to throw out quickly. Some of these are quite out of date because I didn't have time to find newer, more up-to-date ones. But here we go. The average phone screen time is three hours and 23 minutes a day. 10% of us will check our phones first thing in the morning before we've even really managed to open our eyes. 53% of under 40s will wake in the night to check their phone. We each consume 74 gigabytes of data a day. Now, this is a weird one, I appreciate. But that is the equivalent of consuming 16 movies a day or filling up a laptop hard drive, if you take the average one, every four to five days. And how many of you have had the same laptops for like 12 years? And it's still like running, yeah. That takes a long time to fill a hard drive, but we consume that much data daily. 500 years ago, the well-educated would have consumed that much information in their lifetime. And I think, you know, we think about the view for us, because we live after what's called the Enlightenment, is that it's just because we're better now than we were then. And in some ways, fine, great. We've got medicine and technology, wonderful. But actually, for me, that tells us that there's a problem. I came across this joke this week that made me laugh. 50 years ago, car manuals told you how to adjust the valves. Today, they tell you not to drink the contents of the battery. That actually, we think we are so much better, but I don't, I don't think that's a useful way to draw out that information. Every minute, half a million Snapchat photos are sent. Every minute, 4.1 million YouTube videos are watched. Uh, 46,700 photos are sent on Instagram. 500,000 Facebook comments are made. 293,000 Facebook posts, unique ones, are posted every minute. Now, I appreciate this is like 8 billion people minus those that don't have the internet or these services. Uh, every minute, we add to YouTube 500 hours of video content every minute. So every hour, we are adding 30,000 hours of video content to YouTube. 37% of new, uh, Netflix users will watch at work on a second screen. One billion YouTube videos are watched daily. 70% of those videos are watched on a phone. Uh, and 70%, and this is interesting when you think about the stories that form us, 70% of those we do not choose. 
we're fed those videos by algorithms. So we don't even choose what these things are anymore. And most of us will see five to 10,000 adverts a day if we use the internet. Now we call this life progress. But interestingly, the more we consume, the less well things appear to be going for us. And just a couple of things. So in 2021, they reckon that 29% of those under 30 experienced an unhealthy level of anxiety. Um, and anxiety is an interesting one because we think you might be here like, I haven't got a mobile phone, I haven't got the internet, I'm free from anxiety. Well, that's not true because we have something in our society that's emerged as we've got more comfortable and we have more choice called choice anxiety. So in 2015, Tesco had 28 varieties of tomato ketchup. 28. They also offered 224 types of air freshener. Now, choice doesn't sound bad, I admit. There's a guy called Barry Schwartz who's written a whole book on this called The Paradox of Choice. He says this, if we're rational, social scientists tell us, added options can only make us better off as a society. This view is logically compelling, but empirically, it isn't true. And they tested this in the United States. Um, they did, you know when you go into a supermarket and they're trying to give you a piece of something you don't really know that you want, but they're giving it to you, I don't know what it might be, something to dip some bread in, things like that, or maybe a drink, and they're just giving it away for free. But actually they want you to buy the stuff. So they tried, they did this in two different ways. In both instances, they offered one dollar off some jam. In one scenario, they offered six varieties. And in the other... They were offered 24 varieties. Now you think, more choice. Great, I can get a dollar off the jam that I want. Well, what they found was, actually, in the case where there were six varieties, 30% of people, almost a third of people, bought the jam. When they had 24 options, only 3% bought the jam. Why? Because it gives you anxiety. Because what if I make the wrong choice? There are all these options. I need to weigh this up. You know, this is the underlying thing. It's more complicated than that, but on a very basic level, this is it. And even in so the world that I've trained in for the last eight years was building websites. And increasingly with websites, it was just stop giving people choice. If you want to sell something, don't give them a choice. Just sell them the one thing. Because as soon as you give them choice, they'll make choices you don't want them to make. But this idea of having so much choice just causes these kind of small bits of anxiety over and over and over again. And it, gets, it has this name attached to it sometimes called analysis paralysis, where rather than making a choice, we'll just choose not to make any choice. Netflix is interesting. How many of you spend hours not watching Netflix, but trying to choose something to watch on Netflix? Okay, this, this became such a problem for Netflix that they've introduced a feature where Netflix will choose what you watch for you. You just press a button. Because they recognize that people were getting frustrated with the service because they had too much choice. Our own brilliance, in some ways, is killing us. And actually, could I be honest? This is not a new thing. This is the human story. Over and over and over again. You know, we were promised, when computers rose to prominence, what were we all promised? We were promised that we wouldn't have to do menial work. We could have four-day working weeks. We could do what we like. Instead, this is now a computer that, if I don't have, I'm aware that I don't have it, and I need to find it. 
I've become enslaved to the very thing that was supposed to give us freedom. Now, these devices have actually, in some ways, become inseparable from us. I don't Have you ever experienced what they call phantom vibrations? You may not. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the sickest one of all of us. So this is, again, they've done studies on this. So they took 290 um, students in universities in the USA and just asked them about their experience of what they call these phantom vibrations, which is you, don't, you think that your phone has vibrated. You take your phone out of your pocket. There is nothing there. Sometimes you don't even have your phone on you, but you experience that sensation. Now, the only other real place that this happens is when somebody loses... You know, has a leg amputated or something, they have you know, what they call phantom limbs, where actually your brain is still processing that information as if the limb was still there. But we see the same stuff with our mobile phones. It's become a part of our bodies almost. These are the computers that free us. Right? Now, I say none of this in judgment because I'm in the same boat as everybody else. And in the noise of life, actually, we see Jesus retreat over and over again. He goes away and retreats. And I recognize that when I say, let's practice silence, some of that is just, we want to oppose all the stuff that's crowding us and demanding stuff of us. But I also don't want to undersell it. I don't want to sell it as an easy thing to do. Because what many of us will experience um, actually, is that silence is not as easy as it seems. So many of us in our lives, I was reading this, a book by a lady called Ruth Haley Barton. Again, if you're interested in books, she's written a book called Invitation to Solitude and Silence, which is a relatively easy read, but just makes some of this practical. But she, in, in the book, she talks about a meeting she had with her therapist. And the, the image that her therapist used was like, imagine you've got a jar of river water that you've just taken out of a river, and from time to time, the, you know, all the stuff of life just shakes it up. That, that water remains murky. Instead, actually, the challenge for us as Christians is to be still long enough to put the, let, uh, the, if we are the jar, to be still and let the sediment settle to the bottom of the jar, and then we can see life clearly. Without practices like silence and solitude, there is a risk that we will go through life without really grasping the things that God has for us. And actually one of the things Victor said last week is it's not even just about shutting out external noise. Because when you shut out the external noise, you realize all the internal noise that you have. I have never wanted to pair socks as much as I do when I try and pray. Does anybody else experience this? Suddenly, suddenly I really want to iron all of my clothes. Suddenly I remember that I do need to sort out some insurance for that thing that I forgot about. You know, all these things suddenly come to us when we try and come to silence. And so the, the reality for many of us is there is a season with silence of just learning how to be silent because it is not as easy as it appears on paper. So one thing Victor said last week was you can write down 
those things that come to mind so that you can just forget about them for a minute. Um, Ruth Haley Barton in that book says some of the stuff that comes up is stuff that weighs us down. It's concerns and worries. And she said, actually, one of her things that she does, this is really practical. Some of you are like, that's ridiculous. I won't do it. That's fine. For some of you, get an envelope, write the word trust on it, write down the stuff that comes up, put it in the envelope called trust, and give it to God. Actually, you're, you're trusting God with that stuff rather than you trying to carry it all. And I think the other thing that I would say about this as well is when I talk about coming and finding silence, I'm not necessarily saying, you know what, we all need to find an hour a day to be silent. Because for some of us, if we try that, we will never try it ever again. So try five minutes. Try ten minutes. And set a timer. The other thing I would say on this as well is if you say you're going to do five minutes, set a timer somewhere. And at the end of five minutes, even if you're having a nice time, stop. Because it's better to leave time with God, wanting more of him, than becoming fed up with the situation. Does that make sense? Now, over time, do more time. If it becomes this thing that's fruitful and wonderful and a place of joy, do it more. Some of us will find, actually, the reality is when we come to try and be silent with God, when we take away all the stuff of the world, we realize that we are really exhausted. I was going to read a piece of scripture. I haven't got time. But it's 1 Kings 19, verse 1 through to 7. And a bit more, to be honest. So this is um, the story of Elijah. Elijah has just um, fought hundreds of prophets of Baal. There's been this amazing, unbelievable... I mean, this should be a movie. I have no idea how this is not a movie, right? But Elijah calls down fire onto an altar that's covered in water, and it's, it blows people's minds, and it's... I mean, Ridley Scott would have a field day with the imagery, right? But after this, there's a woman called Jezebel who basically says, I'm going to kill him. And Elijah flees, and he gets to a point in his fleeing where he is exhausted. He lies down underneath a bush for some shade, presumably, not because there are pillows in the bushes in the ancient world. I don't know. But he lies under the bush. And what's, what happens next is interesting. Elijah basically prays, I'm no better off than my ancestors. God, just kill me now. I've had enough. Now, God doesn't show up and say, you just need to spend some more time with me. You just need to find some silence. That's not what happens. What happens, an angel turns up, gives him some bread and water, and tells him to sleep some more. And that happens again. The second time, the angel says, it's because actually you've got to go on and do the things that God has for you. But if you don't rest, then you're not going to be able to do them. And in the place of silence, there is a work for us to do within ourselves that the Holy Spirit brings us to. For some of us, though, the first thing we realize is we've got to sort out our health. And the reason I'm highlighting this now is because for some of us, this would be a deal breaker as to whether we can get alone with God or not. Because you hear somebody like me saying, you've got to spend time with God, and your body is going, I just don't have the emotional capacity to do that. Actually, 
Sometimes those moments, God is speaking to us as much as he ever could through the world's greatest prophet or whatever. Sometimes we have just got to rest and stop and think about our health. That also has to not become the excuse as to why you don't pray. That can become the excuse, well, I'm just too ill. Actually, in that restoration, what you see in the story of Elijah is God comes and meets him. Ruth Haley Barton says this, listening to our fears rather than ignoring them can give us great insight into the conscious and unconscious resistance we have towards solitude and silence. Some of us don't want to enter solitude and silence because we know that as soon as we stop the wheels of life turning, we have to come face to face with that grief that's buried inside us. We have to come face to face with the pain and some of the decisions that we know God is calling us to make, that we can just ignore for now because we're too busy. The truth is, if, if we want to be changed and transformed by God, we have to come to God without an agenda. And this is why praying in silence is important. Because as soon as I come to God talking, I have an agenda. And it doesn't take very long for it to go from being a veiled, thinly veiled agenda to just being my agenda, treating God like a vending machine. Carla Rico has this to say, transformation is not done through our strategies. It is done to us because we are open to remaining in the presence of God. And again, I'm just quoting people because it's easier than me trying to come up with something clever when guys have written good stuff. Henry Nowen says this, Solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is the place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of all my scaffolding. And he talks about that scaffolding as being our relationships, our friendships, the work that we have. For many of us, it would be, oh, I just need to send that message on my phone, whatever else. These things that distract us. He says, we get rid of all that stuff to be alone with God. He says, the struggle is real because the danger is real. It is the danger of living our whole life as one long defense against the reality of our condition. The good news for us is we know no matter what our condition is, There is grace without limit for us. God is patient with us. The good news, if you look at that story of Elijah, actually he cares for us far more than we would ever care for ourselves. So I don't know how you feel about the idea of silence and trying silence. I know I've ended them on kind of like a bum note there. But when Jesus says he wants us to follow him, he also says that there is a cost to that. And I think often we can think about all the things that we have to give up. But I think sometimes that cost is just being willing to surrender so that he can change us.
So, I'm very aware of the time and the fact that I've gone on for ages. I apologise. But maybe, should we try and pray together in silence? Interestingly, you don't have to do silence alone all the time. You can do silence together. That is an option. And then we'll just see what the Holy Spirit does. So we're going to take just two minutes. But I'm just going to run through. These are just some practical things. that If you go and practice this yourself at home, here are some things to be aware of. Okay. So one is just however you are sat, just take a minute. You can close your eyes if it helps. But just be aware of your body for a minute. Now, this people get really weird with me at this point. I know it sounds very Eastern, like, spirituality. No, no, no. Be aware of your body. Are you comfortable? Are your feet comfortable? Are your hands comfortable where they are? Is your back okay? You know, all that stuff. Find a position that's comfortable. Otherwise, those are the things that become the distraction. And then just in your own heart, there's no complicated prayer, really, for silence. My own prayer is always just this. I'll pray it and then we can just have, we'll just wait for two minutes. If kids are noisy, don't worry. Here I am, Lord. Well, thanks so much for listening to this teaching from Nen Valley Vineyard. We pray it blesses you and produces good fruit in you. If we can connect to you or help you engage with our community, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via our website, which is nenvalley.church.